into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your host, Samson Kovach, welcoming you to another wonderful Theology Pit day. This is part 19 in our Bible series, and we're actually getting to the point of discussing interpretation. And you might think that, hey, you know, if you've just tuned into Theology Pit, probably thinking, well, why don't you make this like the first thing? Well, I think that we need to establish what it is that we're exactly trying to interpret. And when it comes to the word of God, we want to be as sure as we possibly can that it actually is the word of God. Not because it makes us feel good or because we want it to be, but because it actually is. There is actually legitimate, uh, tangible evidence that this book is God's word, that the Bible is God's word and what books make up the Bible and what's in them. So that's what we did, you know, for all those other theology pits in this Bible series. And now, talking about interpretation, we're looking at the way um, the ancient uh, Jewish people interpreted Scripture and how, if you notice, some of that spills over in today. We talked about um, allegory, which is finding the hidden meaning. You kind of strip away all of what um, the, the meaning of the passage is and you make it be your own. You just give it different attributes and say, okay, this really doesn't mean this. It actually means that. So every time you see this, it means that type thing. Typology, which is a foreshadowing of present and future historical events of uh, people of the past. Um, you see a lot of that when it comes to Christ and in, in the Old Testament, that they were a, a type of Christ um, that was you know, uh, attributed, I guess, to them. So you could see what the son of man was going to be like. Um, Pesher, which was a form of, uh, harmeneutics that had to deal with the end times dealing directly with you. And, um, of course, you know, Midrash, which is the literalism letterism, uh, as long, uh, along with Pesher, I guess Pesher falls into that, uh, category also. And depending on the region that you were from, you would use these different methods of interpretation. So actually when you're reading through the New Testament and you see one of the authors using a particular method, like a Midrash method, well, they would have been a Palestinian Jew, where if they used more of an allegorical method, well, that would be something the Hellenistic Jews would do. So just like we can do with denominations today, we can kind of listen to somebody talk and what they say and figure out their denomination. They could do the same thing with the way somebody interpreted the Bible back then as a Jewish person. Let me grab a sip of water here. Okay, so we were talking about um, some of the the allegorical interpretations and the uh, typological uh, interpretations, and I, I I wanted to talk about them just for a little bit, just before I moved on to the early church. Um, because you have some things where, you know, just because the apostles did it and they interpreted the Bible this way doesn't mean that you have the authority 
and the ability to actually interpret it this way. Now, I know when I say authority, man, that could be like a loaded question because that does come down to, well, you know, by what authority are you doing this type thing? Um, you know, the Church of Rome says, well, we're the ones who are the interpreters of Scripture. And, you know, I mean, th- think about it. If I'm sitting here saying to you, hey, you know, Matthew can use this particular hermeneutic, this particular method of interpretation, but you cannot because of who Matthew is. Um, that's an authoritative statement. So, I don't know, you know, I mean, it, it lends itself to being problematic. It can, I think it can be pushed in a direction. But let's just see, like, some of the stuff that was done. Okay. For example, in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 31, verse 15, sorry, it says, The Lord says, a sound is heard in Ramah, a sound of crying and bitter grief. It is the sound of Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are gone. Now, what does Matthew say? Then, what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice heard was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud wailing, Rachel weeping for her children. She did not want to be comforted because they were gone. Okay? So, even though that was a different understanding of Jeremiah back then that nobody would have seen, you know, what was happening um, with with Herod, you know, uh, killing all the kids under the age of two there. And, and that would almost be, I mean, if we, if we were going to take an honest look at this, we would look at that and say, wow, you really wrote that after the fact. And you are really making that say something that's not saying because that's not what was going on in Jeremiah. And it wasn't even necessarily a prophecy. It was something that just happened uh, during that time. And yet Matthew is seeing that as a prophetic uh, statement here. The book of Hosea. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, When Israel was a young man, I loved him like a son, and I summoned my son out of Egypt. Matthew 2.15 says, He stayed there until Herod died. In this way, it what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet was fulfilled. I called my son out of Egypt. Okay, well, I mean, is that what the prophet said? I mean, was that the whole point of Jesus being in Egypt? Was, you know, for that to be called out? Again, Matthew is seeing something, and Matthew is a Jew, um, a Jewish writer of the, of the gospel. You know, he's using this type of interpretation differently than what we would use, how we would use it, I should say. So, you just want to be careful of that. It's usually better to stay on the safe side and allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Now, if you interpret something and you write it down and say, okay, the Old Testament says this, but it really means that, and then it follows the definition of what is the Word of God and becomes the Word of God and people treat it as the Word of God, then... Um, excuse me, yawning here. Then I would say that you know you have a leg to stand on in that using that particular interpretation. But let's move on now to the uh, early church from uh, 100 AD to 500 AD. 
Now, the early church continued like this Christocentric interpretation in, in, employed by Christ and the New Testament writers. The earliest Christian writers used a functional hermeneutic, encouraging local churches in their faith. While there was usage of typological, the early church eventually moved to a primary use of an allegorical hermeneutic that was popular in the Hellenistic culture. And we talked about this um, just a, a, well, I don't know a little bit, but we talked about the reasoning why um, churches were doing things in the way that they were doing uh, back in the uh, Salvation series. I mean, at this time period, remember, uh, Christianity is illegal, okay? It's, it's, it's not a religion that is licensed. It's not a religion that's recognized in the Roman community. And it's being persecuted. It's going through a lot of different persecutions. People are being beheaded. You know, I mean, they're being fed to lions. They're being tortured. Um, they have no rights. They have no protection. And uh, most of what the um, pastors and the bishops and you know the priests were doing at the time was much more pastoral than it was do, sitting around doing systematic theology, sitting around you know um, trying to figure out the um, you know the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, trying to figure out the hypostatic union of Christ and you know the Lord's Supper and and is it bread and wine or is it the body and blood of Christ or you know how does that work? What is transubstantiation? Where does this all occur? They they weren't thinking of that. That's that's not their mindset. Um, their mindset really is just keeping people strong in their faith, just reminding them of what Christ has done and that you know you will be persecuted for your faith. It's like I said, it's much more uh, pastoral. And you have the, also this understanding at this time that the Jewish people were cursed. So the understanding of the uh, Midrash uh, formula that was being used of, of hermeneutics, um, they would probably be shying away from that because of its association with the Helen, with sorry, with the Palestinian Jews, and you know, obviously, the temple was destroyed. It looked like they were cursed by God. They were a nation that lost their people. They, uh, from from a Christian standpoint, from a Christological standpoint, they turned their back on God. They they crucified the Son of God. They they killed Christ. They were responsible for this. They spit on God. God and turn their back on him in every single way possible. And he, in a way, removed his hand from them and the great diaspora happened. You know, the um, temple was destroyed in 70 AD and then there was like a minor uh, revolt like 50 years later, somewhere around then. And, you know, they were completely removed from the area and Rome forbid uh, the Jewish people from returning and just, yeah totally cast them out. That's the way that the Romans handed things, handled things. So if you're associating, you know, everything that they did with what you were doing, um, in a way, it's like Protestants that ignore a lot of the uh, Roman Catholic liturgy and um, history and just all the things that Roman Catholicism preserves uh within itself just because of like the you know the monolith of the the branch of christianity that it is um if it looks too roman you automatically don't do it so they're probably thinking you know what this looks too um palestinian jew 
interpretation of what we're doing and being Gentiles and understanding Greek, we are, uh, and being more Western, we are much more of a Western mindset, Western philosophy. And this was part of the problem with the division between the Eastern and Western churches um, early on. And, you know, function and form and, you know, should we be speaking Greek or should we be speaking Latin, those sort of things. So, the allegorical side was the Hellenistic side of the Jews. And that was matching up also with the world. So, let's say you're trying to figure out your own hermeneutic in this time as as the church, as this newly birthed church that, you know, Christ has established. Well, which direction do you go? Do you go towards the direction that has obviously been rejected by God and has been cursed? Or do you go towards the direction that is still, you know, somewhat in existence and it's also you know the the culture around you, the 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 logic of it, the um, uh, you know a, a apologetics aspect of it, the 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 proof of it, the the tangibleness, um, and so you would go in that direction and say, okay, this is how we're going to you know understand it and how we're going to interpret the Bible. So when you're reading uh, commentaries about um, the Bible, about the New Testament from the early church fathers of this time period, you always have to keep in mind that they're usually using an allegorical method in order to do that. Um, For example, I think it was St. Augustine who was talking about um, the book of Genesis. And he said, if anybody really believes that, uh, you know, the the, everything was created in six literal days, uh, more or less needs, I'm paraphrasing this, more or less needs to have their head examined because that's not how you're supposed to interpret scripture and that's not how you're supposed to understand it. It It's not six literal days that it's talking about, but periods, time periods. And so, back then, nobody was saying that you know, the earth was 6,000 years old and, you know, or, well, I guess they wouldn't have said that anyways, but they, they wouldn't have said that, you know, um, the earth was, I guess, 4,000 years old by that point, uh, by, you know, counting everything and doing all that. They weren't being that literalistic with it. They were like, no, you know, we were going to explain this. And also as Christians, you, you have a, a more of a, I guess, a gentler mindset in it, not only being a minority, but the way that it was set up with the turn the other cheek and that sort of thing. And you weren't exactly a nation. So if you're not a, a nation state, you're not going to have kings. You don't have the power of the sword. That's a lot of you. But yet you're trying to retain the old Testament as scripture because the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament is scripture. But when you read the, some of the stuff in there, it's not jiving with this new dogma that you're exercising. And so the easiest way to do it is to use an allegory to kind of explain away some things that you might find offensive or some things that you might find uh, problematic when whenever you're talking to other people. And um, yeah, they would see it as problematic. And of course, you can see how this would lead on um, to. Uh, allow Gnosticism to get a foothold, that everything you know, spiritual is good and everything physical is evil, and the allegory is looking for the spiritual side of it that, that comes out, that's the meaning, and just, you know, all of the the you know, terrible, evil, wicked, physical uh, catalyst needs to be thrown aside because the actual uh, meat and the life-giving word is from you know, the, uh, the, the allegorical spiritual understanding. So, um, the Gnostics, you know, the, from, from, uh, uh, Gnosis or, um, 
you know, it, it just means um, knowledge. All right. If you, if you're a Gnostic, you claim to have knowledge. If you if you put the letter A in front of it, it negates it, and you become agnostic, uh, which means I don't have knowledge. No knowledge is no knowledge. Um, so they claim to have the secret teaching of Christ handed down to them from the apostles. And the church increasingly employed a traditional or authoritative hermeneutic that sought to appeal to church traditions as the interpretive norm for Christianity. Thus, you have early church tradition, the regula fide, and that's the rule of faith. And we talked about that, and that is the thing that was believed everywhere and by all. So if there was any new thing that came in and nobody ever heard of it before, they would say, well, that's not part of the regula fide, so we're kind of um, throwing that out. And they, and that's where they would also start appealing to authority because, you know, Christ, uh, you know, after the resurrection is walking around and talking. Well, he's the ultimate authority to go to. He ascends, and now you have the apostles with, you know, Peter being, um, you know, the we could say first among equals if that, you know, satisfies both, you know, my Protestant and my Roman Catholic listeners. And, you know, they would look to them, they would look to the bishops in their area. If, you know, Peter was not accessible, they would look to all their other bishops. They would look to the councils. They would look to people who were, who walked with Christ, who knew him, who he, you know, commanded and, you know, breathed the Holy Spirit into them and, you know, that whole nine yards. And and he is the one who placed his hand on them and gave them authority to pretty much run the church. And then when they were gone, you go to their disciples who knew, you know, like Polycarp, who knew John, and John knew Christ, okay? Uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch was John's disciple also, and he and John knew Christ. So, I mean, between like Polycarp and um, Irenaeus, or um, Ignatius, you would be able to say, okay, I have a question, and, you know, here's what it is, or somebody's saying this, is this true? And then, you know, Polycarp's disciple Irenaeus, um, you know, when Polycarp was gone after he was uh, martyred, you know, Irenaeus in uh, Lyon, France. So you would be able to go to him and you would, and well, what do, what did they say about that sort of thing? And there were more people that were around. So you have like this big community of people, you go to authority. It's not outrageous to think of that as your hermeneutic, as how do we understand the Bible? How do we understand our faith? How do we understand what Christianity is by going to the authority? And this rule of faith, this regular fide, also took it out of the hands of, you know, all of those different people. But at the same time, you know, kept it within their community. So it's sort of like, you know, you, you had freedom within boundaries in, in a sense. But uh, practically speaking, um, they came to uh, rival scripture, the Gnostics did, as the authority for um, doctrine. I'm sorry, uh, regular fide did. It came to rival scriptures, the authority for doctrine in the church, and um, was used as a basis for all other hermeneutics. So the Antiochian school... Um, of interpretation rejected both allegorical and authoritative hermeneutics in favor of a historical grammatical uh, interpretation, which is what we talked about uh, last week with the triangle. This hermeneutic did not gain wide acceptance until the Reformation. So, like it's like the first and second century pastoral guidance was um, functional. You had the apostolic fathers, and they were doing a a functional form of interpretations for Christians in order to allow them to, um, you know, handle all the persecution that was going on and learn to live out their faith. 
second century, uh, you started getting apologetics in there, like Justin Martyr, who was a philosopher um, who was converted to Christianity. And um, he was very uh, typological when dealing with the Jews. And he's probably taking stuff from Hebrews, which speaks a lot that way. But also, um, you know, the, the typological understanding in uh, philosophy, you know, is uh, very strong that he could uh, pull from. And then the second and third uh, century had um, heresies that had to be addressed um, with the Gnostics. So you had uh, Tertullian and Irenaeus, and Tertullian was from uh, Northern Africa, and he's the one who coined the word um, Trinity. So when, when talking about our triune God, he's the one that came up with the word uh, Trinity. Um, and Irenaeus, as we said, was Polycarp's disciple, who's a disciple of John, who's a disciple of Jesus. And they use the very authoritative um, sense, either through councils or through the apostles themselves, or you know those who came after the apostles. Grab another sip. I don't know why I'm so thirsty today. So, um, according to uh, David Dockery in his uh, book, Biblical Interpretation Now and Then, he says, the rise of heresy produced a hermeneutical method in which uh, church tradition determined the meaning of scripture. By this, a hermeneutical circle was enacted. Church tradition was created by the interpretation of scripture, and the interpretation of scripture was then governed by the church's traditions in the rule of faith. And the, something that has to be said here when it comes to wrong thinking, when it comes to heresy or heterodoxy, you know, um, other teachings, heterodoxy is just a, you know, a, a nice way of saying heresy. If you don't want to call someone a her- heretic, you just say, well, that sounds like a heterodoxical uh, understanding there or interpretation. And um, they allow us to work through, you know, our theology. Um, they're, they're, I'd say they're, I don't want to say they're good, but they're beneficial. Um, like when discussing the, uh, nature of God and the attributes of God, it's easier to talk about what God is not. And then whatever is left over that, that is God. Um, especially when it comes to the Trinity, you know, when, if somebody says, well, the Trinity is like an egg, you know, no, that's wrong. The Trinity is not like an egg because the Trinity is one God in three persons or one, what, and three who's a egg an egg is three what's that make up a thing. Okay, it's completely different. Um, the the yolk, the white part in the shell, you don't eat the shell. So if you don't eat the shell, how is it of the same substance? Um, and this is where the whole understanding of the uh, homoousios and homoousios came in of uh, similar substance or same substance when it talks about uh, Jesus being the second person of the Trinity. Was he of the same substance as the Father or of similar substance? And um, so it's, it's a lot easier to talk about what he is not. Um, so, but with Without heretical people in the church bringing up these different ideas, we would never have uh, come to this idea and, and working through our method of interpretation. And some people use this today in their churches, you know, their church may have a, a guide or um you know, some type of catechism or um, a type of confession or just something that the pastor says and that that's where the buck stops. It's like, okay, you know, you belong to this denomination. You ask about the Bible. We say this. If you think something different or want to talk about something different, no, we shut you off because this is what you're to believe. Ignore all that other stuff. Like people have asked me, when you teach theology, why don't you just teach truth? 
why why do you teach all this other stuff that you don't believe? Why don't you just do what you believe and just talk about it and tell you know tell people? And I mean, really, the answer is that is that you can get that everywhere. You can get that anywhere else. What I've done is I've listened to all those people. I've studied as many as I possibly could, and I still and I continue to do so. And I gather all that information so that I can systematize it and separate it. Because in contrast, there's clarity. The more I can see the definite contrast between things, the more the um, the unit of truth, I should say, uh, comes out of it and, and, and what's left over and where those boundaries actually are and whether or not it's that important. You know, I mean, the, you know, having perfect doctrine or having, you know, proper doctrine is not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary for the health of the church. So I'm not going to say that a church shouldn't have a specific creed or, you know, a specific doctrine or anything like that. I'm just saying to allow grace, um, to move in there, you know, look at, you know, the first Corinthians 13, you know, with the, the whole love chapter and that's dealing with the way that, um, you know, the, the, the church in Corinth was, was dealing with its and you know, with other believers, and Paul was saying, "Look, the greatest thing out of these is is charity, or is is love." You know, so just be uh, be be charitable. So the Alexandrian school of interpretation is heavily influenced by the Hellenistic culture. The Alexandrian school of interpretation represented by Clement of Alexandria and Origen placed an emphasis on the allegorical meaning of scripture, looking to find deeper meaning that lies behind the literal sense. Now, Origen's view of interpretation Think of, and I don't know if we talked about this before, uh, but the trichotomy of man. Like when we talk about the anthropology of man and we talk about the constitution of man, what constitutes a human being? What makes a person a person, like a human being? And, you know, you would have, um, you know, uh, I think they're monists that would say, well, there's just the body. You would have, um, you know, dualists um, that would say that there is a material part and an immaterial part. And within that dualism, you know, you would have uh, people that would hold to a dichotomy, which is that there's a body and a spirit, or a trichotomy, which is that there's a body, soul, and spirit. And then, of course, you have, you know, the traducians in there also that believe in a body-soul unity, that they, when they're fractured on death, they have to be reunited and that the parents create the body and the soul, you know. But for or- Origins understanding, think trichotomy, think that there's a body, soul, and spirit. And I guess the way you could think about you know, why the, the necessity for that was that the bodies are physical, the uh, soul is our uh, cognitive ability, but the spirit is the part that um, communicates and relates uh, directly to God. So he would say, the body would be the literal plain meaning of scripture. As you're reading it, what you get on the face, on the surface of it, that's the body. The soul is the moral meaning. That would be the homiletical aspect that comes out of it. What does it mean to me? How does it apply to me? You know, going through that that triangle, that whole hermeneutical method. And then the spirit would be that allegorical or hidden spiritual meaning underneath and that it would have all three of these layers. Um, now, to look a little bit closer, 
origin, let's take uh, Genesis um, chapter 19, verse 30 to 38. And this is dealing with Lot's sexual relations with his daughters. Okay. Again, this is something that, you know, would make Christians kind of queasy in uh, explaining. It's, you know, if you look at it as, as a literal thing, it's, you know, it's a very, it's, it's disturbing, you know, non-believers come to that and be like, dude, really? Your, your book advocates direct incest and, you know, not just incest for, you know, like pleasure, but incest for procreation. And they would have a lot of problems you know, with that. As I think, you know, a lot of Christians will be like, Oh man, when you phrase it like that, that's, that is kind of, uh, kind of tricky there. You know, I'm not sure that I like that too much. So the way origin would handle it is that he would say the literal understanding is that this actually happened. Okay, the moral understanding would be that a lot represents the rational human mind. Lot's wife represents the flesh, and Lot's daughters are vainglory and pride. The spiritual understanding is that Lot represented the Old Testament law. Lot's wife, who was turned to salt, uh, represents the Israelites' rebellion in the wilderness, and Lot's daughters represent Jerusalem and Samaria. Okay, so the Antiochian school of interpretation, um, the interpreters would use the um, historical, grammatical, literal interpretation um, was the only meaning of the text. The spiritual application found direct correspondence in the literal only through understanding the history and the grammar could one discover the author's original intent and thereby understand what God was communicating through the text. Okay, now, again, we've just switched. I may have ran by that fast. We went from Alexandrian, which was what Origen was doing, to Antiochian, okay, the Antioch school. And um, because... You know, with both them starting with A, whenever I read through that real fast, maybe that confused you. So um, I, I apologize for that. The Alexandrian, think uh, Alexander the Great, who Alexandria was named after, uh, Hellenistic, Greek, and looking for the hidden meaning. Okay. Antioch. Um, that was the place that was uh, actually a bishopric. That was one of the one of the top five, I believe, along with um, uh, uh, Rome, Constantinople, uh, Jerusalem, and I'm trying to remember where the where the fifth one was. I think it was Alexandria. Was was the the fifth one? Um, but a part of the problem is that if you get a person that's associated with this, and even if it's a really good hermeneutic to use, if the person associated with it is heretical, and this is the whole genetic fallacy, then everything that they taught, thought, and believed, you have to throw out. Again, if it sounds too Roman Catholic, it is. Now, part of the problem was Nestorius, who had a a bad understanding of uh, the nature of Christ, the hypostatic union of Christ, that what well, was attributed to him, that you know you had this um, physical Jesus and this divine Jesus, and sometimes he spoke out of his divinity, sometimes he spoke out of his humanity type thing, and you know that was a problem. Well, he got associated with this school of thought that we use, and that's why it wasn't um, used a lot and why it became a problem. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. 
Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. SamsonStick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Now, one of the scholars who, um, at, at this time, who was really pushing this this type of interpretation of saying, no, we should really, you know, look at the historical grammatical literary hermeneutic, and, you know, like we reformers use today, his name was Theodore. And he, uh, you know, was doing a good job with it, but his student was Nestorius. And when it got attributed to him with this Christological heresy, they could kind of push back and say, see, you wouldn't have this Christological heresy if you actually use the right interpretation. And that interpretation being either more mystical or more allegorical or, you know, something along that line. And this can be part of the problem with when the Reformation took hold, because the Reformation kind of uh, breathed new life back into this uh, method of interpretation. Now, you know, look at it from Rome's point of view here. I mean, uh, part of the problem that they had is everybody could interpret however they wanted. Nobody had the final say. And you had heresy all over the place that had to be dealt with. So the church dealt with it, tried to get rid of all the heresy that they possibly could. And for a thousand years, things are going great. Okay, or good enough um, when it comes to the uh, interpretive method. Now, all of a sudden, you get this German monk that comes along on the heels of some other people, and he springs up and he is talking and speaking things that are against what you know Rome is officially holding to, what the Pope is officially holding to, and in addition to that, he's resurrecting a type of hermeneutic that was associated with a heretic. And so what are they going to say? I mean, face value, you ask them, well, how are you interpreting that? Well, here's the method that I'm using. Oh, do you mean the method that Nestorius used? That heretic? You know, I mean, that's that's something that you can, that people do to complete destroy somebody's argument without actually addressing it is they use a genetic fallacy or an associative fallacy. It's associated with this person, i.e., therefore, it is wrong. And people do that today. You know, I mean, uh, I guess uh, more of a humorous one is people say, well, you know, it's actually better for the environment for you to be a vegetarian. And you say, oh, a vegetarian? You mean like Hitler? Because Hitler was a vegetarian. And see, so immediately you've associated something that, I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, somebody's dietary preferences. That doesn't make you a Nazi, but that's immediately what you put in their head. Well, no, no, not, no, not, not, not like Hitler. No, no, I'm not a Hitler, you know, and, and so it's, it's a wrongheaded thing to do. But, um, this was, you know, what's going on and what we generally do. So this became, uh, one of the problems with the Reformation and with the method that I'm uh, using. Now, granted, in Vatican II, um, the Roman Catholics pretty much said that this was okay to do. It was sort of called Luther was right, um, that this was all right, but it had to be done under the, um, the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so their study guides, their teaching, you know, they're digging into this. There's really nothing wrong with it, but it is, again, freedom within boundaries. Okay. Um, Theodore, uh, Antioch's great exegete, did not believe that the Song of Solomon was a love song between Christ and the church. 
as an allegorical school suggested, but believed that it was a love poem written by Solomon to celebrate his marriage to his Egyptian wife. As well, he drew a distinction between Old Testament texts that contained genuine messianic prophecies and those that, in their historical setting, were not truly predictive prophecies, but merely analogous experiences shared by Christ and the Old Testament situations. So, the Antiochian view of Scripture is a body-soul unity. It is much more traducian that um, you don't have a body and a soul. You are a body and a soul, okay? Um, because of sin, there is a fracturing that happens called death, and that that is an unnatural state for us to be in. And nobody will be in hell as a soul. Um, the great white throne judgment that happens at, at the end of time, at the end of days, um, the the uh, death in Hades and the ocean all give up their, their dead and they are resurrected. Unbelievers are resurrected and then they stand judgment before God at the great white throne judgment. This is um, how... God judges people is he judges whole people. He doesn't judge a soul and he doesn't judge a body. He judges a whole person, a body, soul, unity. So the resurrection is true for everybody, but it's just, you know, are you being resurrected to eternal life or to eternal damnation? Um, so that's from a um, Traducian standpoint and, and understanding, and I hope that's that's clear. I don't know if I went over that in uh, the Salvation series, but I, I, I feel like I may have uh, touched more on that, so you can go back and listen. When you listen to that series, I'll, I'll hit on that anthropology a little bit more. Now, Augustine, his hermeneutical principles, though I should, I should finish up and say, but this whole body-soul was a literal, historical, grammatical, uh, and spiritual understanding. So, the way that, you know, I, I taught you with the triangle, and I told you about that, that would be this uh, Antiochian uh, view. And Antioch, if you're kind of wondering geographically where it is, it's like uh, north of Jerusalem, a little more, it's around the Mediterranean Sea area, but north of Jerusalem, I believe so. Um, so the, um, Augustine's hermeneutical principles were this. Number one, genuine Christian faith must be possessed. Okay, you can't rightly interpret scripture without it. Number two, the literal and historical must be held in very high regard. Number three, scripture has more than one meaning and the allegorical should be used to find the second meaning, quote unquote second. Four biblical numbers have significance. Now, again, he's saying this before there were uh, chapters and verses in your Bible. So, he would say historical numbers like in the book of Numbers, like in apocalyptic literature, like in, you know, um, the, the 5,000 fed, like, you know, those, those type of things. Um, the Old Testament should be understood as a Christian document since it is about Christ. The interpreter's task is to derive his interpretation from the text, not force his preconceived interpretation into the text. Number seven, we must consult the analogy of faith, the regular fide, when we interpret Number eight, no scripture is to be studied out of immediate context or the context of the rest of scripture. This is also called the pericope, which means the unit of thought. A unit of thought could be a verse, it could be a paragraph, it could be a chapter, it could be an entire book to find the meaning. What is you know, the, the context of, of what is in there? What is that unit of thought? Because a lot of times when people are reading through something, just because we have chapter and verse numbers in there doesn't mean that that's where the thought begins and ends. That's just you know put in there for reference 
referenceability, I suppose. Um, we must not build doctrines on obscure passages like uh, like the Mormons do with baptism for the dead. And the Holy Spirit is not a substitute for diligent study. I've been in churches and I know denominations that do that, that they say, I just go up there and I open my mouth in the pulpit and if the Holy Spirit doesn't speak through me, I don't speak. And there's very little study, there's very little planning. They don't teach theology, they don't study theology. They just kind of read their Bible and whatever comes out just comes out, and that's the way that God wants it. But honestly, that makes uh, God a God of, of, of chaos and not a God of order. All right, so let me just kind of review real quick, because that's, I mean, I just dumped a lot of stuff on you uh, from this time period. So we'll name, uh, uh, we'll go back through the, the four different uh, type of early church hermeneutics. I'll tell you some of the people that held to them and what they are generally. All right. So I'm going to do a little repeat here. We got about, you know, 20 minutes or so. So let's do this. The functional or typological hermeneutic, okay? Functional was, um, think of it like more like counseling, okay? How does it apply to my life? How should I live my life? Where is my hope? Where is my faith? That type thing. Typological is um, where, what are the types of Christ that we see, Um with uh, Jacob, you know, being um, captured by his brother, just like Christ was captured by the soldiers. Um, he was, you know, uh, thrown into a jail cell, in, in, into a, a dungeon, um, just like Christ had to, you know, go to um, the bowels of, of hell and, you know, proclaim the, descend into hell and proclaim the gospel there. Um, that, you know, he was then um, lifted high up by the king and put in a place of authority just as Christ was raised up from the grave and he now sits at the right hand of the father in all power and authority and he will judge the living and the dead. He is given that kingdom and he is given that power and he's given that authority and all of his enemies will bend their knee to him and all of his worshipers will and followers will want to bend their knee to him just as Joseph's brothers bent their knee to him. Uh, Benjamin who loved him him and bent his knee to him willfully and his brothers who did so unwillingly but through force they they did so you can see how this typological understanding would go and you know it would help them uh also i guess as like a memory aid to you know remember these old testament stories and their correlation with the new testament clement of alexandria of course used this method um ignatius used this method Polycarp uh, used this method. And so it makes you wonder, was this the method that um, John used? Now, Clement uh, was more than likely discipled by Peter. So you have Peter and John's disciples here using the same type of uh, hermeneutic. So it kind of makes you think about that a little bit more. Now, also, the early Christian um, writing, the handbook on how to be a good Christian, the Didache, and that's spelled D-I-D-A-C-H-E. It looks like Didache. So, if you want to you know, look it up online and read it, that's that's how it's spelled. But the Didache was around, you know, circa 100 AD. And it 
speaks in a functional typological uh, language also. So, you know, the didactic, and that just means the teaching, um, think of uh, didactic approach. So the teaching, and short for the teaching of the 12. So this teaching of the 12 um, would be in line with the disciples of the disciples. So more and like the disciples themselves. So you can start to kind of make that connection on this is how the early church was in fact, doing it and why uh, Justin Martyr, the philosopher, was also um, using it. The authoritative aspect of it came right after that. Uh, these are all the, the functional, um, I, maybe I should give some timelines here. Clement was around like 96 um, AD, Ignatius 50 to 100 AD, Polycarp 69 to 155 AD, um, the Didache is around 100 AD, and Justin Martyr 100 to 155 AD. Okay. The authoritative then comes into place, and we're talking about 135 to, to 225, roughly. Okay. So Irenaeus was 135 to 202, and Irenaeus um, was the disciple of Polycarp. So you can kind of see, well, is, is he moving somewhere away? And this might be because of what we talked about earlier, that whole great diaspora, that looking at the Jews as, you know, accursed, plus um, being in, uh, you know, Léon, France, um, you're further away from the um, Palestinian understanding and the Eastern uh, understanding, Eastern philosophy, in Eastern interpretation and much more in the Hellenistic. So it's easier to gravitate away from it and move into more of an authoritative because you're saying, look, I am going to be appealing to, you know, these couple generations that came before me, you know, not very far before me, you know, I mean, we here in the theology pit, you know, we can quote people, if you're, we're quoting people from hundred years ago, that's like 1917, you know, so when you think about like, you know, like, like the time periods here in American history, I mean, you hit back to, you know, the 1920s and you're talking about like, you know, Calvin Coolidge and there are some people that are Calvin Coolidge fans, President Coolidge's fans. And, uh, you know, and you can speak with authority on, on that sense, on what they're saying, especially if you are in a direct lineage, you know, from uh, Calvin Coolidge, from President Coolidge. Um, and Tertullian was from that, you know, Northern Africa um, area. So you're, you're talking like the Alexandrian area too. So you're going to have a lot more of that Hellenistic influence. Now, the allegorical, that's the fourth one. Um, again, authoritative, again, is, um, you know, think, think of like the magisterial authority, the church speaking, okay? Allegorical would be, you know, finding that hidden meaning type thing. And you would have Barnabas, 130, which he is very uh, contemporary with the authoritative. Um, and I would say that the allegorical and the authoritative do kind of overlap, a little bit. Um, you know, Clement of Alexandria, specifically if the later Clement, um, 215. Uh, Origen, uh, 185 to 232, and then Augustine, uh, 354 to 386. Okay, and so these are all, you know, Hellenistic, um, Greek understanding uh, in in their uh, philosophy and their reasoning and their way of thought much more western much something something that we would appreciate and that we would follow and understand 
And so they'd be using that uh, allegorical method. And then the historical grammatical method would be used by people like John Christensen. So that he would be, you know, 347 to 407. Um, Theodore of uh, Me- uh, Mopsustia, I can't pronounce it, M O P S U E S T I A. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Um, but he was from 350 to uh, 428 AD. Uh, Theodoret was um, 393 to uh, 457, and Nestorius was uh, 451. So you can see the progression. And, and the historical what did it mean then to the original audience? How does it compare to scripture? How does it compare to um, our thoughts, emotions, feelings, experience, um, tradition, theology, uh, environment, science, you know, everything else? It's much more systematic in that way. And then what is the timeless principle and how does that apply to us? All right, that came, you know, fourth. So that was, you know, after all this other stuff that that was developed and then, you know, kind of condemned very early on. So again, um, functional, typological would be, you know, pastoral counseling and uh, you find Christ in everything, okay? Um, Authoritative would be, it's only from uh, the church or bishops, or priests, you know, think of like the way that the Roman Catholic Church is doing it. Allegorical would be generally some stuff you would hear on Sunday mornings, uh, but they would be saying that that's really what it said, this this hidden meaning, this second meaning, or, you know, first meaning back then, you know, that they might say that that's the important thing. And then finally, the historical, grammatical, literary hermeneutic, which is finding out what the meaning is and how does it apply to our life now. All right. So hopefully I've gone through those four enough today that, you know, you, you won't have to feel fatigued after listening to this. And, you know, I've just hit those four big points. If, if you're trying to remember, well, what did I talk about in the beginning of the podcast um, or the beginning of really of this, this part of the podcast, that's really the big ticket item, those four things. So I've said it over and over and over again to hopefully, you know, kind of cement it in that these are ways that people interpret the Bible. And these are ways that people interpret the Bible now. I mean, you sit in Bible studies and you hear people uh, talk and say things like that. Um, you know, I mean, you get the the different, you know, reader response hermeneutics. You know, you read something and what does it mean to you and what does it mean to you? And uh, next week, we're going to be talking more about that, about the historical grammatical hermeneutic, um, what the the proper way that most evangelicals in America interpret the Bible. And when we say evangelicals, I don't mean just from like the evangelical free churches or any church that has the word evangelical in it. Um, it, it just means, um, it's, it's sort of, I'm using it in like a generic sense. Okay. Think like a nice fundamentalist in a way. Um, but we're going to just kind of explore that a little bit more in how do we go about finding that original meaning in more in more depth. Um, Second Peter or yeah, Second Timothy two fifteen says, "Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth." 
meaning the scriptures, not only Old Testament, but also um, New Testament. Uh, Some of the questions that we're going to also kind of hit up uh, next week um, would be, how did people interpret the Bible during the Dark Ages? And we talked about that. And what, what what do we mean by the Dark Ages or the the Middle Ages in uh, in our, our uh, series on salvation, our soteriology one, or on justification, you know, more precisely, and how the um, the humanists and the um, scholastics um, and the battle cry of the Reformation ad fonts, you know, ad fontes to the sources, to the fountainhead where, you know, the life water springs. Let's get back to the originals. What do they say? What's, what's the Koine Greek? What is it? You know, how are we getting back to there? And they pejoratively called that period between what they were going back to, um, the great, uh, works of the, Greek philosophers and thinkers, and then they put themselves in that same category. So everything that came in between them was the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages or you know depressed ages. Though you know these are all the people that are completely ignorant, and we are the ones that are enlightened. So it was very very pejorative and, and kind of snooty, in my opinion, to you know put stuff like that. Um, you know, we'll look at like what changed at the Reformation. Um, you know how how did people start shifting away, and why did they shift away? You know, I mean, if you're thinking about it now, you're saying, well, you know, as soon as Rome loses its authority, they then lose their grip on the way people can interpret and understand the Bible. And, you know, that's that's kind of a correct way of thinking it. And Rome was very concerned about this because they were like, listen, uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther's doing this stuff. And they're telling him, hey, listen, Marty, you know, if you're doing this stuff, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get people reading the Bible and interpreting it however they want, not the official way that the church has said. And you're going to get heresies all over the place. You're going to get the church splintering into all different groups of people that claim that they have a monopoly on the truth and on the monopoly of, you know, the truth of interpretation of the Bible. And Martin Luther said, you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it for people to, uh, to do that. And I don't know how, uh, you know, how forward thinking he was in, you know, his comments in, in, in doing that, but well, you know, were the, were the Roman Catholics, right? Well, yeah. I mean, look what happened. I mean, you get people all over the place now that claim to be, you know, gospel preachers. And I, I've said this before. Maybe I shouldn't be this uncharitable uh, about it, but you know, um, Benny Hinn and um, uh, people like Joel Osteen are gospel preachers in the way Colonel Sanders is a military officer. Um, they don't reflect the gospel or the preaching of the gospel. Um, Bishop T.D. Jakes, I mean, he's someone who denies the Trinity. Um, it's it, like, where does he fit within all this stuff? You know, if, if you have somebody who, you know, denies, um, you know, the Trinity as we understand it, uh, uh, what method is he using? What historical method is he using? Hermeneutical method is he using? And does that mean that that particular method then is problematic? But for, in the last 500 years of the Reformation, 
how many different denominations of Christianity is there? And then if you count some of the subdivisions within the Roman Catholic Church, because the Roman Catholic Church is not completely uniform. I mean, you can tell just from the differences in the, in the popes that we get. Um, this pope that we have now, Pope Francis, he is no John Paul II. Okay, John Paul II is very, very different. And Benedict, you know, was was different from, from both of them. So what exactly is going on there if the Roman Catholic Church is so uniform? Part of the problem is um, the uh, way that the church is is governed, the government of the church, um, which is called ecclesiology. It's the study of the church. And when you look at what is the primary role of the church, what is what is the church supposed to be doing in the world? What is the, the governing point of it? Well, people from South America have a liberation theology, and they believe that the whole point of the church is to stand up for social injustice in people's lives and to bring people together and to be part of unity, not so much as, you know, defenders of the faith and not so much as, um, you know, standing strong for the work of Christ and, you know, Rome as a whole and, you know, being that unifying factor, it is no, you need to use the power that you have as a religion uh, to force the state into submission uh, when it comes to giving people their God-given freedom that they possess and that they deserve as being in, in the image of God. And in a way, you listen to that and you're like, well, it does sound kind of righteous, but it's a definite shift. And then, you know, you also have other types of Roman Catholics that that are, um, I think they're, uh, boy, I hope I get this right, Leo X Roman Catholics. They are pre-Vatican II Catholics. So they are people that do not hold to this whole, you know, interpreting the Bible in this way, everybody reading the Bible, everybody studying it, everybody coming up with all their own ideas, like those sort of things. No, you just need to follow what the church says. And you need to kind of ignore Vatican II, and it really wasn't a true ecumenical council, and you need to be more... um, a lot more mystery in it. Uh, John Paul II had, you know, uh, a very mysterious aspect to his his Christianity, to his faith. Um, one of my favorite quotes from him is that he said, um, "Faith and reason are like two wings upon which the human soul soars to the contemplation of truth." That's a very mystical understanding. That's a very allegorical understanding because um, you know Vatican II uh, had. You know this this type of uh, movement under um, uh, uh, John Paul, that John Paul II, that you know was not uh, there you know beforehand. So you know if if you got a a, a Roman Catholic pope who was more of a Leo the Tenth type of Catholic, there would yet be another shift in the way Catholics approach, approach the Bible, in the way that they did things, in the way that they did their hermeneutics. And these are all part of, you know, the human experience and the way that we are understanding our faith. And so, when you look at all the different Protestant denominations, it's a lot easier to kind of point the finger and say, look how divided you are because we take on different denominational names where the Roman Catholics still say that they're Roman Catholic, but they, you know, take on all these different ideas. So it'd be like if everybody, you know, said that they, or every Protestant said that they were Lutheran because of Luther, but yet 
none of the churches were any different. You just had like, you know, the, the Pentecostal Lutherans and you would have the Evangelical Lutherans and the Presbyterian Lutherans and the um, Anglican Lutherans. And, you know, but, but they say, but we're all Lutheran. But that, that's what it was. So you'd have that. And then we're also going to discuss um, next week, what are the common interpretive mistakes that we should avoid? Um, and those are very important because, you know, if we know what's, the bad methods are or the wrong methods or methods that don't bring us to our end goal, then that will help us to get to what we need as the true and right and correct interpretive method to then um, understand what God is saying to us through his word, what what scripture is saying, what scripture is meaning. And again, in contrast, there's clarity. So that's why I'm going to spend time teaching you the wrong things and telling you the wrong things in order for you to understand what the right things are. And I, I will express what I think the right things are. And obviously, historical, grammatical, uh, literary, hermeneutic, I do believe to be the correct way, just as I believe that, you know, traducianism Lucianism is the proper way of understanding uh, the anthropology of man. Um, so, hey, thank you for listening to the Theology Pit. Uh, you know, please send me an email, Samson at SamsonStick.com. Um, like us on Facebook at the Theology Pit. Uh, subscribe on iTunes to get these podcasts, um, you know, every week when they come out, like directly into your box there. Uh, rate us on iTunes and leave a note. I really appreciate it. And now it is most definitely time. Time to close down the pit. Thank you.